Uh, we're now going to John Bonfilio, who's a Latin America correspondent, to uh, get an update there. And, John, good morning to you. Sad news in the papers today that the last male survivor of a Brazilian indigenous group has died from complications linked to COVID-19. Yeah, so this is 86-year-old Amoim Aruca, or Aruca Njuma, who was the last remaining survivor of the Juma indigenous community, which about 50 years ago numbered, I mean, it was a, it was a decent-sized community. It was in the region of 15,000 people. But during, over, the, uh, over that period of time, essentially a series of incursions, uh, killings by miners, land grabbers, and inevitably, when these happens, you know, infections related to the wider world began to wipe out um, the community, and in particular the, the male members of the, the community. And... Uh, this Chaparuca was the last remaining male survivor of, of the community. His daughters had already married off with, with communities elsewhere um, and essentially uh, contracted COVID and died of COVID-related uh, complications uh, a couple of days ago. And important, not just, you know, obviously a personal tragedy for him and his family and so on, but also it's reached the news because it's for sure, you know, emblematic of what's taking place with indigenous communities across across the Americas, but also in particular around the, um, the Brazilian Amazon and the extermination of these communities, which is happening uh, relating to you know, kind of environmental affairs and economic affairs, but also which has been augmented with the, with the coronavirus and, and COVID uh, situation, which is wiping entire tribes out. And also important to say, not just, you know, a life or death thing with the communities, but also how these communities communicate and remember and historicize is all traditionally through the oral tradition. So when you wipe out, you know, a higher generation of, of elders, you're not just losing an individual, you're losing an entire memory bank of a, of a nation or a tribe. Staying with Brazil, there is a question now about whether you can actually vaccinate a whole town, uh, inoculate them against COVID-19. Yeah, this is taking place in Serrana, in in Brazil, where a town of uh, 45,000 people, um, which no, no Brazilian had ever really heard of up till now, has essentially been chosen as a as a, a trial population to try and vaccinate every adult member of the of the community to see whether that reduces um, you know, cross infection. So there's this kind of trial taking place there, which is going to, we're not going to know the results of in. Um, in May, one of the strange side effects of, of these trials taking place and, and the, the COVID world in which we live in is that uh, real estate agents in this town have now been inundated with calls from Brazilians wanting to move there from other parts of Brazil and buy up property. So property costs uh, and value have gone through the roof overnight. And let's move to Venezuela, which is on Brazil's northern border, and two things happening there. One is that Colombia appears to be saying that those Venezuelans who have left the country because it has become something of a basket case, according to some people with the economy in, in free fall, they're saying that they can now access jobs and they can access the health service. Uh, and also that the, um, that the Venezuelans have abandoned the Venezuelan money and gone into dollars. Yeah, this, I guess that, that whenever an, an economy has, you know, in, inherent problems, then often there's a, there's a search for, 
for, for hard currency, and then that becomes your, you know, your standard rate. So whenever, in particular, in a hyperinflation context, I mean, I remember back in, in, Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe in the early 2000s, it was exactly the same thing, that um, people were using uh, Zimbabwean notes as bookmarks, and they were essentially valueless. To go and buy coffee, you'd have to carry a, a rucksack worth of cash uh, and pay in the millions of Zimbabwean dollars. And it's much the same in Venezuela. So basically anything which is not the Venezuelan Bolivar is a value, whether that's a dollar, whether that's the euro, whether that's gold, um, you know, anything which has which is a tangible external value is, is what people um, buy and sell in because the Venezuelan Bolivar is just, you know, is completely valueless. I mean, the story of Venezuela, it, it, it's been going on for so long now, really. You know, it started going terribly wrong in, in 2014. And I think it's really interesting because how do you keep telling the same terrible story? In, in the press, and I feel that this, the press has really struggled with this. I mean, you know, do you talk about the oil, about the fact that Venezuela has the largest known oil reserves in the world and it's itself is running out of oil and has to import oil? Do you talk, as you say, about, you know, million percent inflation? I mean, what does that look like? It's just crazy. Do you talk about the mass migration where it's lost essentially somewhere between a quarter and a third of its population have abandoned Venezuela over the course of the last few years? Do you, do you talk about living through hundreds of power cuts a day where, you know, anybody who needs to do anything standard with electricity, uh, schools, hospitals and so on need generators? Uh, do you talk about eliminated diseases historically returning out of nowhere? I mean, GDP under Nicolas Maduro uh, since 2014 has shrunk by three quarters. I mean, you know, you could go on and on, but you can't just keep repeating these statistics in a, in a vacuum and, and real people uh, on the ground in the streets of, of Venezuela have been suffering exponentially in what has been historically one of the nation's most stable um, and wealthiest, wealthiest countries. You know, whether other people want to call it a basket case or, or not, is, is entirely up to them. Is it is it a, a country which is suffering, um, you know, historic unprecedented levels of, um, of of statewide problems outside of wartime? For sure. Moving now to Ecuador, and this is about the Ecuadorian presidential election. This is one of those stories which is um, peculiar, but also you know again really symptomatic of, of of our times and of Latin America. So essentially, two weeks ago there was the Ecuadorian presidential election and what tends to happen in latin america is elections take place on a sunday and then if anybody who wants to be a candidate goes into the first round and then ordinarily you only have a winner emerging if they they emerge with 50 percent or 40 percent and then have a lead of 10 percent over their rival so what normally happens is that two people emerge in the first round and then go into a into a runoff at some point in in the future we had a fairly clear winner uh, with a left-wing candidate uh, supported by Rafael Correa called Andres Arauz, who's, you know, standard leftist policies. And then you've got the, the right-wing free market economist called Guillermo Lasso, who's run a few times for president unsuccessfully. And it was thought that he would get, you know, the second place fairly, fairly straightforwardly. But then this indigenous anti-mining activist called Jacob Perez actually polled remarkably well, and both have somewhere between, uh, you know, 19.5% and 20%. So essentially, both on Monday called for uh, for, for a recount, and it seemed as though that was that was all set to take place. But then you had this really bizarre, surreal meeting of the five-member electoral council, in which two of the members voted for a recount, one voted against, one abstained, and one just stood up and left the meeting without explaining himself at all. Um, so essentially, the vote 
wasn't carried. There is going to be no recount. And everybody, especially the indigenous communities of, of Ecuador, are alleging fraud, are saying that, you know, this is uh, unprecedented. And how can an electoral council not not even come to a decision in this context? So Yacoub Perez is, uh, is pursuing legal channels to try and get a recount to, to take place and calling on protests to uh, uh, to land in Quito. So for sure, tensions are arising in, in, in Ecuador and uh, we wait and see where where this all heads. And finally, America is to allow in thousands of asylum seekers waiting in Mexico. This is, of course, the Biden administration saying it's gradually going to allow in the uh, tens of thousands of asylum seekers currently being forced to wait in Mexico. Yeah, continuing the reversal of Trump policies. During the Trump presidency, the administration, there was essentially two very controversial policies which which came to place. What's known as the safe third country uh, policy and the remain in Mexico policy. So the, the safe third country essentially meant that asylum seekers who were on their way to the US, if they passed a, in inverted commas, safe country, had to seek asylum there rather than continue on to, to the US. And, and the next one, the remain in Mexico, was that asylum seekers from Mexico who were trying to get through uh, the border into the US actually had to um, file their asylum claims in Mexico and remain in in, in Mexico. This was highly controversial because obviously any asylum uh, seekers in uh, on that border area or in other countries in Central America were clearly at high risk of you know of abuse or crime, um, etc. So these two policies have been reversed, and in particular, the Remain in Mexico policy has now been uh, thrown out the door, and uh, 25,000 asylum seekers are now being um, allowed in over the course of the next few weeks to have their their claims processed in the United States rather than uh, rather than on the, on the border area between US and Mexico online on DAB plus and on